as you are becoming bigger, you stop innovating, you stop challenging yourself, you stop taking risks, right? So think about a rebrand. For 99.9% of the people, it will be like, what the hell? Like, you know, everybody knew us. Why would we change the brand, right? It's a huge risk, right, at our stage. Why would we do that, right? And I think a small company would not even think about it. Like, if they want to change the brand, the name, whatever, it would be easier for them to do that. For a bigger company, you tend to have all of these things. If we do that, you're taking a risk. Are you willing to really make the big bets? And I think that the number one things that scares me is to become that company, the company that stop innovating, stop taking risks, stop uh, actually also kind of staying truthful to why you've even started the company. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is both personally and professionally to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, leave a review, and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks. Do you know Mamoon or Ilya? Yeah, we've talked. We met on our uh, C-round. And was Mamoon at KP already? Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, was, yeah. he was just starting. They came actually to our offices, so that's why I was not here. They came to our office to meet us. Okay. Yeah, so Mamoon was there and uh, Ilya? Yeah, 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 Ilya. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the Series C. That was yeah, the Andreessen round? did it, yeah. And did yeah. they do the B too? No, Lightspeed did the B. Lightspeed did the yeah, B. Yeah, Okay. So Seed A was Oren, Oren Ziv. Yeah. And uh, Lightspeed joined it, both of them. Yeah. So Oren led. Lightspeed joined, yeah. and uh, and Lightspeed did the B, and Andreessen did the C, yeah, and the D. Yeah, I'm curious when you're picking investors, you've raised ah, God, fuck, how much? Like, like a billion dollars? One point five. One point five billion dollars. Yeah. So like, and you've raised from, let's just say, at least five or six institutional investors at this point. Is there something you wish you knew at the seed before you raised, like, you know, your Series G at this point or whatever it is? It's a good question. I actually learned it. It's my second startup. Yeah. I learned it on my previous one. Yeah. The partner or whoever you're working with, this is the most important thing. I think all of the rest are nonsense. Like, you know, you talk about valuation and you talk about this VC versus the other VC. The most important thing is which partner you are uh, working with. Less the brand, less this is this VC, the other VC, who are you working with? So I actually learned it in my previous startup and we really implemented it here. But when you say less the brand, and I'm genuinely curious yeah. because I, you know, I play for the home team here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, of course. Do you still care if it's a in quote unquote tier one? Meaning you're saying less the brand of the top ten yeah. to fifteen yeah. brands. Is yeah. that what you mean, or yeah. do you mean just in general it does not? No, matter? No, I think the top tier, the tier one means a lot. Yes, I think it's important. I actually think that there is so many things against you in a startup that. If you can raise from tier one, it will help you a lot. It helps with recruitment. So I'll much. Give you, especially when you grow. I know CROs, CMOs that will join you only if you raised money from a tier one, right? So it's kind of their criteria. And a lot of employees are doing it. On the early days, developers are definitely doing it, like who invested in that startup. So it helps a lot. Specifically with, uh, interesting enough, with uh, it's less about the tiers, but specific VCs. What I found uh, Andreessen to be 
very connected outside of uh, Silicon Valley. So if you're trying to build something that is less just tech, but something that we have a lot of dependencies on airlines, hotels, stuff like this, it's important. I think that a big thing that VCs that are really good can help you do is, actually, I stole this from Mark Andreessen, is connect to the matrix. So what he describes is this idea that there are a select handful of venture capital firms that when you work with them, you plug into the matrix. Right. And what that means is obviously you get access to the individuals that work in those firms. Great. The partner that you work with who sits on your board, their respective partners, the supporting team and all that. But then also you get access to the most important and influential people in every other vertical. Yeah. And what's weird is you don't actually know when you're going to need those people. And it's very hard to evaluate an investor based on those people, right. if that makes sense, because right. you don't even know that you need those people down the line. Mm-hmm. But at some point, eventually, and by the way, that could also be talent. Right. That could also be talent. That could also be back channels for talent. Could be all sorts of things. That could be someone putting in a word for your next investor, mm-hmm. whoever it might be. Right. But I think there is something to be said for that as well. 100%. I think that was kind of my point. And I think tier one VCs have the tendency to be more connected, more respected outside. So it's kind of almost like a flywheel that you keep, you know, in enjoying from the connections, you enjoy from the brand. To your point, connections that, uh, I actually have an interesting story about this if you Please. if you want to. Yes. So when we're raising the C round, we kind of, we talked with several VCs, we kind of, uh, Ben and I uh, and Andreessen shook hands, we yeah. said we're gonna do that. And we had an argument, a pretty long-term argument with Delta Airlines on the same time that went to assist and assist and some kind of, uh, a lot of exchange of stuff. And I've told Ben about it. And that's before we signed the term sheet. And I told him, uh, I will probably need your uh, your help in the process. And he was telling me, sure, I think that I can help you with that. And the interesting thing, first of all, he didn't kind of, you know, some people will get afraid. Why would I sign a term sheet right now if they have an issue with one of the biggest airlines in the world? One of your most strategic partners. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And we shook hands and Ben... Once you shake hands, I think it meant something to him. So I think that was one of the reasons with, that we did the round. But he also really believed that he will be able to help us with that. And he did. So he looked at his contacts into Delta Airlines. He arranged a really important meeting with the entire Delta Airlines management team, talking about all of the C-level. He was there. I was there. Elon, my co-founder, was there. We've managed to sort it out. So in this case, we actually knew in the process that we will need that kind of out of Silicon Valley help. And it was a really good start for the relationships with Andreessen. You know, you kind of start like that and talking about kind of VC value. Yeah, totally. I know people that want to work with Mamoon or mm-hmm. Ilya just because they have seen the bottoms up motion so crystallized from the very beginning. Figma today and then Slack and then you keep going down the list backwards and it's like you get to know a lot of the tendencies and muscles about a certain type of business and then you just kind of keep riding that hand. 100%. I remember that back then we were not a PLG company, but obviously Slack and the entire story there. And I remember we already had an agreement with Andreessen. I think it was Ilya, I actually don't remember, maybe both of them contacted me and wanted to talk. And of course I was saying, why wouldn't I talk with them? And obviously I was very aware of Slack, right? So I think this kind of experience and uh, how you are known in the founders community, it's also very important. Yeah, I totally agree. And then maybe just one more thought that I had on the access to people thing and tier one, the only firms that have been around for a very long time are firms that deliver good returns. Mm -hmm. 
invest in great companies, partner with great entrepreneurs. And then over time, if you've been in business for long enough, naturally, your ecosystem of people that you know is just going to be huge. Right. So for us, like we've been building goodwill for 50 years. The 50th anniversary was last year, I think. Mm-hmm. And so that's not just the companies that we invest in. And then the alumni from those companies that go on to start other companies, just generally you get to know a lot of people. And I think that staying power mm-hmm. just by default lets you know a lot of people. 100%. I think the goodwill part is important because I think generally in a relationship in business, you cannot be transactional. So if you're developing the relationship and sometimes you are throughout the 50 years, you are helping somebody, but sometimes that person is helping you and over the years you're developing this relationship, then everybody will help each other. If it's more transactional, you know, I need something from you right now, probably you're not going to get uh, help. So I think that's kind of developing these things over the years, it's important. Yeah, and I do get the sense that, at least this is just my impression from a fresh eyes of an operator coming into venture capital, having never done it before. The thing that struck me was that even internally, highs never get very high and lows never really get very low, meaning it just feels like business as usual when you've seen as much Mm. as we have, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Even if we have a gigantic outcome, you know, like a huge exit, or if it's, you know, a company went under, Mm -hmm. it's actually kind of the same. You just kind of talk about it, matter of fact, and then move on. Interesting. And I think there's something about that you know, these walls can talk in some respect, you know, like I just feel like there's something very steady right. about that. Does yeah. that make sense? It does, but I do think the crazy wins and losses, you do tend to remember them, right? You do, you know, like we've just talked about Mamoon and Slack, right? Yeah. You kind of, you attach it to him, yes. right? You kind of attach, I don't know, Airbnb to maybe to Andreessen, right? Yes. I think, and also the crazy failures, right? Like, yeah. so everybody, I will not name names, but everybody can attach somebody to FTX, right? So sure. I think you do get to the crazy losses. And I think it generally in life, I'm like that. I'm very much, I will think again and again and again on things that I'm failing with. But I'll also, you know, if I need to celebrate a great success, I will remember it and it will become a story. So I'm not sure. I think it's when it's on the average, you're right. When it's yeah, on I the think extreme, it's kind of your Well, like, and it's interesting yeah. to hear your perspective as a founder. What was the last thing that you obsessed over that you feel like you failed? Wow, that's, uh, I'm failing all the time. It's kind, it's kind of- How often uh, do you feel like you're failing? Probably every day. Seriously? Yeah, I mean it, every day, every day. There is something, it's not, it's not necessarily Like you feel like big. you're letting yourself or somebody else down? No, I feel that, hey, we've uh, tried this, or I've tried this, it didn't really work, and what do we do next? But I'm really good, and also my team is really good on kind of looking at the mirror and say, hey, we failed with that. Yeah. And this is what we're going to do. So it's not, you failed, I actually don't think that anything is a point, like, you know, you failed and it's, that's it, or you won. You need to recognize this thing is not working, or this thing is failing, and to do something about it. And to do something about it could be a small shift or a massive shift from your strategy. But I'll give you an example. So we started the company with a very, very simple idea. It's not what you see today. It's a very simple idea. It was that company money doesn't equal the employee's money. So we basically said when the employees are going out there and spending the, uh, the company money on travel, on expense, you know, when you go to a restaurant and choose which wine bottle you want to choose, the employees will tend to treat the company money differently than if it was their own. And we came up with this entire concept that people will book 
trip through us, like uh, flights, hotels, and so on. And we're going to reward them on every time that they're deciding to book under policy. Okay, so that was the concept. That's how the company started. Like a gift card. It was an Amazon gift. It's still actually an Amazon mm-hmm. gift card. And that was a brilliant idea for early stages. CFOs, early adapters loved it. Okay, as we started to grow, you know, the company started to add stuff. So we became this T&E, this travel and expense and payment systems. And what I've just described became a feature in the product. Okay, so we looked at this recently and we saw two interesting things. On one side, companies that are uh, using that feature are actually saving above 10% of their entire travel budget. We see it in numbers, in the data. So you really, we can see per transaction that the employee switched the decision. Did book that hotel and not the other hotel? Okay, or that room and not this room. But then we discovered another thing. Only 42% of our customers are actually using this functionality. Okay, in the beginning, the company started with that. Mm-hmm. And only 42, are we failing or not? I think we are failing, right? We have something really, really good that can really differentiate us in the marketplace, but only 42% are using it. And I think looking at this and admitting that's actually a failure is really, really a good, uh, important start. Then we started to ask why. If we can show in data that we are saving money, why only 42% are, uh, are using it? So we went and started to talk with them. And it turns out that it's very hard at the beginning to convince that this will save you money because the companies needed to pay for it. It's kind of a rev share for, uh, with the employee. Every time that you save, let's say 100 bucks, you are getting 30 bucks back through an Amazon gift card. And we were just facilitating the thing. So not every CFO will buy into this, that I will pay for this and then, you know, my employees will save you money. And then prove to me that your algorithm is correct and all of these things. The other thing was around taxes, right? It's kind of, if you pay the employees, do you need to pay taxes or not? And there are different opinions around that and so on. So it's complex. So we looked at this and our economics today are way better, our unit economics, than what they were in the early days. So we decided to actually finance the entire thing. So actually to pay for your employees to save you company money. So now when you use Navan, basically we are showing you a price to bid. And if you book under this price to bid, basically under policy, we are paying you to save your employer money. So now 100% of our customers are using it, okay? So, and that's what we've we've just released it, but we opened it up for everybody because if we are paying for it, unless you have some crazy objection, you will want to use it, right? So I think this is how I'm looking at stuff. A failure on something is not necessarily a permanent failure. You can actually change slightly as long as your vision is clear. We always wanted to create this match between the company and the employee, and we just found a better way to do it. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense to me. You've been building the company for nine years? Eight. Eight years. We just celebrated our birthday in May 1st. Congratulations. Very exciting. It's one of the darlings, you know, was called Trip Actions, now called Navon. Yeah. Raised at almost $10 billion, like all the accolades, you've raised all the money. I mean, this business is prime time to go public, like in whenever the markets are ready, I imagine. Like that's not a secret, right? When you reflect back on those nine years, Mm -hmm. is your reflection different than how you feel others perceive that journey to have been? 100%. I think that me and probably Elon are experiencing the entire thing probably differently than others, 
right? You go to this journey and, you know, I'm always saying that every startup starts at Ikea, right? What do you do after you raise money, right? You go and uh, find a small office and then you go to Ikea to buy furnitures and then you, you know, you start to install them. Oh, great. Next uh, thing you know, they're going to start an incubation for well, That's what you do. That's what you do. It's so, it's so crazy. You know, you go and you are in this time that you raise money and you have this big pitch. You know, one day, back then, it was, uh, we're going to be one billion dollar company. You know, that was the thing. The how you going to be? Yeah. How you going to be a $1 billion company today? Yeah. If I'll ask this question, it will be a very bad question yeah, to yeah. ask. But anyway, so you're dreaming big, but you start very, very small. And I don't think if you go deep into my head or Elon's head, I don't think it's that different for us. It's still that thing. We still, I'm not looking at waking up in the morning and thinking, oh my God, this is a $9 billion business or will go public or all of these things. You are building it, but you're still thinking about it in almost like a naive way, which I think makes it fun. Now, I think that some people that are joining the journey, they're joining in different times. Early employees, I think are kind of similar to the way that we are thinking about it. Two of my e-staff, two of uh, the leaders in the company are from the very early days. So I'm sure that they are thinking about it almost like founders, very, very similar to us. But the rest kind of joined in different times, same as investors joined in different times. And I think they are seeing it differently than us. Do you remember the good or the bad times more viscerally? The bad times. You do? Yeah. If I was like, hey, give me your top five rank of low or high moments, most of them would be low moments. Yeah, yeah. I'm very much a wartime CEO. So I'm also, and also my team. So I think we are very good if something kind of comes against us. We are very, very good on a grouping and doing whatever we need to do. And all of kind of the stories in the companies, you know, every company will have a, you know. A, Folklore. Exactly. Yeah. Us, it's always something bad that happened. And then eventually how we won. But I remember, I really remember, and usually I remember vividly the tough stuff. Yeah. yeah. If you were describing company building to an alien, <laughs> how would you describe it? Company building to an alien. Wow, that's a really good question. Yeah, I started using it recently. I love it. That's a really good question. I think it's about being very naive, almost on the stupid naive side. And... Because you're so naive, you can have a really, really cool vision of where you're going to be. And then you need to do everything that you need to do on the, in the way to get there. So I think it's about the vision. It's probably the most important thing. But being very naive about it, really believing. I remember that early, 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 probably on our first week, I was telling uh, Oren, Oren Ziv, that we're going to take the entire market. And I meant it. It was not some uh, founder's pitch, you know. And that's very naive. It's kind of almost stupidly naive, right? It's a really big market. But having the ability to say it and then to start and, uh, and go there, I think is very important. That's how I will describe building a company. And that ambition, can you not help yourself? Meaning that naivete. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a smart guy. You've mm-hmm. built a company before. Mm-hmm. You've been in Silicon Valley for a while. You know it's a huge market. Yeah. You know the odds of you taking the entire thing are basically zero. There's very few times that's happened ever. Yeah. You know? yeah. Can you help yourself? Do you feel like that's a prerequisite before you get going to put yourself into that mindset? Where does it come from? I think you have to. I think that I really, in my gut, I believe that there is always a way. There are different times and two, obviously, cases that we are very close to dying. And here is the interesting thing. In the moment, it never occurred to me. It occurred to everybody around me. 
So, you know, when you are that kind you of- you might die, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, as a company. Yeah. Right? So, and I never thought about it. It never, and, and people sometimes don't believe it, but it didn't occur to me. Like, it's, that's why I'm saying there is naive and being stupid, and I'm not sure if, you know, yeah. where the line yeah. kind of, but at the moment, when we had this issue with Delta that lasted for nine months, right? When we dealt with COVID, at the moment, I'm not talking afterwards. Afterwards, when I reflected back, I was like, oh, wow, we are very, very close to dying. At the moment, never occurred to me. And when I was talking about it with people around me, employees, leaders in the company, investors, they didn't experience it like that. They experienced it completely differently than me. So sometimes it does create an issue for you as a leader to really get your team, right? Because during COVID at the first months, I didn't fully appreciate what the team is going through. Sure. Right, that they are working in this place that probably they're wasting their time. Yeah. Because for me, I didn't think that we are wasting our time. Can I ask you a personal question? Yeah, yeah. When you were young, did you experience trauma? <laughs> no, I didn't, but it's interesting. Because that's a very like trauma-oriented mindset. Yeah, I, it might be as close as it is. So my father had a business that went under, right? And I was a teenager in that process. So that might in, in be- In Israel? In Israel. And that might be the thing that I think also drives me, but definitely that thing that I have this really disbelief that there is always a way. There is always a way to, but to how, figure how it out. But how did that business going under give you the belief that there is a way of, of figuring it out? It's interesting, you know, because eventually, you know, after this business went under, we still, we were still a family and we still, you know, we came home and we had a, you yeah. know, we, we, we stayed alive, right? And yeah. we, we are fine. And I think that's maybe what I've realized that at the moment things could look really, really, really bad. But then afterwards, you're still here. Yeah. When your dad was building the business, was it clear in your mind that that's something that you want to do? No, not at all. It's interesting. It's, it's actually, it was the other way around. I think because of that trauma of going under, when I started to work, I was actually looking for stability. I went and uh, worked for uh, this Israeli company, Mercury Interactive, that eventually got acquired by HP. That's how I found myself at HP. But that company for me was, I loved it. It was big. It was stable. It was, it will never go under. Yeah. Life is great and I can develop my career there. So I actually, I was looking for the other thing, but I think I always had this thing that I want to do something else, right? Yeah. And I think that for me, Mercury getting acquired by HP kind of released me yeah. from working for a big company and getting back to starting my own thing. How old were you when you started your, I guess you started one company before Navon, yeah. right? How old were you? Fairly old. I started at 37. Yeah. So fairly old. I was kind of uh, almost like today I'm calling it uh, not really wasting my time, but kind of wasting my time in kind of big companies. Yeah. And then starting uh, kind of maybe my other journey of doing startups and I would never think of going back to, you know, to the kind of the old ways. Of, yeah, I don't uh, want to speak out of turn because I don't have the data in front of me, but I'm pretty sure the data says that older founders tend to statistically speaking do much better. Meaning in our minds, we celebrate and memorialize the zucks of the world, the young college first time founders. If you look at the long tail of most successful businesses, and if you look at even the Kleiner Perkins portfolio, it's not the 18 year old yeah. that's building the N of one companies. Very rare. 
actually. Even though in our minds, that's what the movies are made about. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think in B2B, you know, I'm less sure about consumer, but I definitely don't have the data. You should have it, right? But uh, I think in B2B, you have to have the maturity because eventually you're selling to companies and you need to get them. You need to understand them. You need to. Un- so, you know, when I said it was not a complete waste of time when I worked in kind of corporates and big companies, HP, which was a place that I, when I was there and I was there for four years. Great company, by the way. Exactly. So when I was there, I was mainly suffering and I was a, an exec there, but nothing made sense to me. A lot of what I've learned about go to market, sales, channels, partnerships, how to think about being in the market, I've learned at HP. And I think it's super important. So to your point about kind of uh, later stage founders, or uh, I think in B2B, it's actually critical to spend some time in bigger companies. Yeah, and see how you do it. You see, you actually learn that, you know, you learn that product is not the only thing. You learn that uh, how you sell it, who are your customers, how you're speaking to them, right? Uh, How you explain your value prop are probably as important, if not more important. To point about why suffering or what does it mean? I like to move fast. I don't like it that in an organization, there would be a lot of people that will explain to you why this thing will not work. I want to try it and then adjust. And I think that in a place like HP, you'll have more people that will actually, their role would be to explain to you why this thing will not work. And that's the role, right? That's so I think I my way to operate works better in a place that everybody are waking in, kind of walking into a room and thinking, how can we make it happen? And that's more of like my style. And during those four years, were you... Stuck between a rock and a hard place because you knew the education that you were getting Mm -hmm. was top tier. It was the best. But also you knew deep down that this wasn't the right place for you. I think both are correct. It's funny, you know, there are some people and I had it early in my career that you kind of think about your, your thing about your career. You're almost like a victim of your career, right? You're kind of, you understand what it gives you, but you're kind of stuck, right? And if you are getting promoted fairly fast, and I was a very young exec in Mercury and then in HP, you start to think, yeah, I get it. Like I'm managing more people, you know, all of the things that, uh, you know, I think you're measuring yourself. And I get it, but I don't want to do that thing. I want to do something else. So you're starting to think about it as almost like a victim until you are putting a stop to it. When I've moved, I've moved out of HP to Jive. And I remember... It didn't make any sense for me to move to Jive. I've moved to a fairly small role there. I was fairly new to the US and I realized that I can go and work for uh, other kind of big companies very easily. But if I'll go to startups, they will see me as either overqualified or not relevant to them. So I realized that as I was interviewing in different places and so kind of that the type of companies that I can get into are not the type of companies that I want to get into. And I started to minimize what I've done, what I did in the past. Even my salary, I started to take it down. And then I started to get traction with companies that I wanted to work for because I wanted to kind of move more to the startup side. So I think that that's kind of the point. I think that if you... Meaning the companies were valuing you based on 
the large company exactly. experience that you had exactly. at HP. Exactly, that, HP and that Mercury wasn't relevant so. to what you thought the future of your career would be. Exactly. So I needed to almost do Which an hard fair, reset. It's fair by the companies, but yeah. I needed to kind of reflect, and that's what I told you. There is only always a way. You can go on a certain direction. This is what I've done, and therefore I'm going to continue and go on the route that I don't want to go through. Right. Or you can do some hard reset or a change or kind of take a certain uh, decision that at the moment could be really, really hard, yeah. right? But will support what you're trying to achieve, your vision. And a vision could be to your company, a vision could be to your career. Let me ask you, this is kind of yeah. a weird question, but yeah. at the time when you were at HP, mm-hmm. did your personal burn rate mm-hmm. increase proportionally to the increase in gains in your career, maybe not just salary, but I think that one of the hard things where people get stuck as a victim in their career is that they start equating their value to the size of their team, to the pedigree of the company that they work for, to the amount of budget and resources that they have, and then to their salary. And the challenge is, especially when you go from a big company or something really sexy to something not so sexy, you are making a certain amount of money Maybe you have a family, maybe you don't, but a lot of times people will increase both their self-worth mm-hmm. as well as their personal burn rate. Maybe they buy a house, et cetera, that then limits them in the ability to actually make that jump. Yeah. I think- Do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree because I think it goes to handcuffs, right? So uh, think about it when a lot of companies, when you're getting acquired, right, you've put a lot of handcuffs on the founders, right? And I actually think that's the worst thing that you can do because founders are the worst people to operate when they feel that they have handcuffs. And I think that definitely in HP, I had a lot of handcuffs because I got acquired into HP. I, I still remember it, it's funny. I got this executive MBA from them, right? So they paid for it, they sponsored it and all of these things, but it required to sign some agreement. And I remember I was fairly happy before I've signed and I was really miserable after I've signed. And it was, it came from a good place. You know, we're gonna give you really good education, right? And I felt great about it. But for me, the after, I felt that I have handcuffs on me. And I think, uh, you know, there are different types of handcuffs. You talked more about the normal things, right? You're committed to your mortgage, to your house, to your kids and all of these things. And can you do the move? Can you do the jump to something else in your career? And I think that it's kind of important to sometimes stop and asking yourselves like, can you do something else? Can you change your trajectory? Do you ever get insecure that you are becoming the big company? Does that ever cross your mind? Like, oh my God, forget everything else. Your valuation is like not that far off what HP's probably was when you were there. You know, like it starts to feel like a much more mature company at this point, nine years in. Yeah. I just wonder, do you ever worry that those that are evaluating Navon today are thinking, gosh, I could go to the little company or I could go to this like mature, I don't know. All the time. Yeah. So if you would work for me, you'd know that that's my number one fear. And I'm kind of, talking about it all the time with the team, is that as you are becoming bigger, you stop innovating, you stop challenging yourself, you stop taking risks, right? So think about a rebrand. For 99.9% of the people, it will be like, what the hell? Like, you know, everybody knew us. 
why would we change the brand, right? It's a huge risk, right, at our stage. Why would we do that, right? And I think a small company would not even think about it. Like if they want to change the brand, the name, whatever, it would be easier for them to do that. For a bigger company, you tend to have all of these things. If we do that, you're taking a risk. Are you willing to really make the big bets? And I think that the number one things that scares me is to become that company, the company that stop innovating, stop taking risks, stop uh, actually also kind of staying truthful to why you've even started the company, mm-hmm. right? We've started the company to change the travel industry, right? We didn't start the company to do an IPO, right? IPO is something that you do as you do financing rounds and you do other things, but the goal is to change the travel industry, right? So as you're becoming bigger, as things are becoming more serious, as you have something to lose, I think that you have to, have to, have to push really, really hard on yourself and the team to not go in this uh, direction of the big company direction. So yeah, it's definitely scary. Yeah, and I think to your point, there is a liquidation event that's pending for all great high growth tech companies eventually, right? right? And what happens is employees start to look at their strike price. They start to look at the increase of the valuation since they joined the company. And actually that creates a risk aversion just organizationally, inherently. Mm -hmm. Because you're like, wait, why would I rock the boat when this is a down payment on a house? Right. It's a very difficult challenge. You know, I think that's where a founder CEO has an advantage over a professional CEO. And maybe I'm talking from obviously from my position, I think you as a founder, you have to challenge everybody to not be there, to not go there, to have the ability to bet on everything. We always had a pretty good uh, machine learning team, but where it comes in the product, it's mainly around our search, around the algorithm to save company money. Okay, so it's not massive part of our product. And a year ago, we've decided to do almost like a pivot okay, into AI, right? And why is it? Because both Elon and I perceived AI as a risk for our entire business or as an opportunity, right? And you need to choose. But I remember I came to the team and I told them, I'm talking about it for the first time ever in our history in terms of pivot, not in terms of let's add something, but in terms of pivot, we need to change something in the fundamentals of how we operate. So I think... Of course, there is risk there because they are shifting resources to do something completely different that there is no customer that asks us to do that, right? And no investor and nobody. So I think you have to challenge your company, your employees, in order of staying away from this risk avoidance thing that you're talking about. Well, and you did the same thing with your go-to-market motion. Right. Which was unbelievable. Honestly, like I give you a lot of credit for that. That's brave. You were a huge company. At that point, it was ripping. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people understand when you change the distribution in the way that you did, Mm -hmm. it's almost as radical as changing the product. It is a pivot. Mm -hmm. So I called it Project Reset. That was the project. And it was, interestingly enough, I don't think that what we did, we changed our go-to-market. I wanted to enjoy from both worlds. I think that what we are doing on a top-down B2B a lot of startups in uh, Silicon Valley, probably 99% of them would love to have, 
right? So we are very, very, we are still very effective on top-down uh, B2B. We're selling to, you know, companies like Unilever and uh, Primark and Netflix and companies that every kind of startup wants to be able to sell to. It's an entire motion, right? It's not that simple to go and sell to these companies. And what I've told the team, I've told them something very simple. It kind of occurred to me two years ago. I'm, every year I'm going to, we can talk about it, but every year I'm going for like a week by myself to somewhere. And By yourself? Yeah. You have a family? I have a family. Yes. But these kids, everything. I have three kids, wife, and every year by myself I'm going to somewhere. And you cannot find me. I'm like disconnecting completely. You cannot find me. It's my time to think. And two years ago, I was in this uh, trip. A lot of time it will be with scuba diving. I love scuba diving. So at that trip, I was kind of in Belize, scuba diving. And I was thinking to myself, I think that we have really good product. And I'm not just saying it because obviously I'm biased. I really think it's good. And if I'm kind of going in an airport and I would ask myself, how many people around me are using uh, back then trip actions? What would be the answer? And I said, you know, if it's in SFO, probably... Two out of 10. If it's in other airport, it would be nobody, right? And it was kind of a mental- Meaning like maybe half the people here are business travelers and of those half, maybe 20% are using using trip actions. Exactly, exactly. And again, if you'll go away from Silicon Valley and you start to go to other places in the world, how many? And we have a lot of users, right? And we have a lot of companies using us and the business is pretty big. But I was still saying, are we making the impact Forget go to markets. Are we making the impact that we want to make? Are we having every employee on the planet using us for TNE? Because the alternative, they are miserable. I mean, it like the alternative is really bad. So why does it take us so long? The alternative is generally an offline travel agent. That's what it is. It's basically, yeah. and the online is Conquer. Yeah. Right? So right. Yeah. the alternative is really bad. So why, why does it take us so long to take the entire market? And out of this, I came back, and this is two years ago, and we started this project, and the goal was, let's keep what we have. Let's not lose it. Let's keep this very effective top-down motion while creating a new one with a new brand, with PLG, with other reasons for uh, companies to using us. I kind of mentioned rewards as part of this. Uh, The brand is different. We didn't have performance marketing. Uh, have a performance marketing team and so on. So for me, it was addition, but it was a reset. I've called it Project Reset for a reason. And I came to the company and told them the same story. When you guys are going in an airport, how many people around you are using uh, now in a van? I think that's the reason that I did it. It was about making a bigger impact. And again, for me, what drives me, it's not like this would be the financials, this would be the financials. It's about making an impact because if not, it doesn't matter. Like why doing this entire thing? Like it doesn't matter. Yeah, well, if you go back to the onset of the conversation where you told Steve, I think we're gonna win the entire market. If you're grounded in that belief, right? if that's where you're starting from and that's what continues to drive you as your mission, you don't have a choice. Like you're just working backwards from that. You don't actually get very caught up in the minutia Mm -hmm. because you're just working backwards from, how do I get everybody in the airport to use this? And then we can figure out the solutions to get there mm-hmm. rather than how do I use AI or crypto or PLG or pick your acronym because I should. Right, right, right. Maybe those are tools. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned AI. 
So are we an AI company? We're definitely not creating infrastructure for AI, right? So if I was creating infrastructure for AI, maybe it will make me an AI company. But we're using AI to achieve something. And what are we trying to achieve? So, you know, sometimes people are asking me, so how will we, you know that the rebranding worked? And I'm saying to your point, because everybody will use us, right? That's how I know. So AI is a way to support our customers better. Again, everybody will use us to show our customers better savings. Again, everybody will use us or to just develop more stuff because you are way more efficient inside the R&D. So that's kind of my point. It cannot be, I don't think that anybody cares about technology. I'm talking about buyers, users, customers. They care about the outcome. And if I want everybody to using us, it's about the outcomes that they get and how do I communicate these outcomes to them. You strike me in this class of founder. I can rattle off a bunch, but like, let's put like Brian Armstrong, Parker Conrad. Like, it, there's this group of folks that I think of as the best, honestly, that are relatively unaffected by what others think. And I think because of that, you have the ability to make these drastic changes. Would you agree with that like assessment of it feels to me like how others perceive you? doesn't matter to you that much. It does, but not as a first priority, right? So I definitely care for how others will uh, perceive me or perceiving me, but I care more about being authentic and also be real and really ask the tough questions. And I care about that more than what I care about the other things, the perception. I'll give you an example. I think now people are coming out with this, which is everything about working from home, working from the office. I thought that it's ridiculous. I was looking around me, you know, I was t- sometimes trying to set up meetings on Fridays afternoon and I couldn't find anybody to meet with. And I was and everybody are playing a game that productivity is the same. And everybody, you know, you have articles, right? Productivity is the same. Everybody are walking from home and life is great. And I was like, no, it's not. And it's not, I cannot communicate uh, effectively with my employees. We cannot get into a room is, and solve a problem. You know that uh, kind of the work time is different. You also see kind of your employees and they seem more depressed. Like, you know, you kind of talk with them through Zoom and can see the engagement going down and down and down. And I came very early. We brought the employees back back then to two times a week and then we expanded to three times a week in uh, June 2021. Like really, really, really early. And it was definitely not a popular move and uh, definitely kind of almost out of the norm uh, move in Silicon Valley. But... My first priority was to be truthful to what I've believed in, that is the best way to manage the company, to have employees in the company, to kind of create the culture that I wanted to create. And the second one was, but what does it mean about what people will think about me? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make me right all the time. I actually told the employees back then, you know, I'm probably wrong about it because 99% of the people here in Silicon Valley are saying that I'm wrong about it. But... I definitely want to do it. I want people to come back to the office, hear all the reasons. I think it will be better for all of us, including the company. So I think it's my second or third priority to think, what do you think about me? The first one would be what I really, what is my set of beliefs, values, and so on. When you're making controversial decisions, how do you get to conviction? Do you have a process from, let's say inception is, 50 feet underwater, scuba diving, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? And then 
50-50 is nothing, by the way, but that's okay. <laughs> no idea. My ears would burst yeah. up like 10 feet, so I'm the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> if you'll see the type of scuba that I'm doing, you'd, uh, you'd not invest in me because it's super risky. Like... <laughs> All your, your whole cap tables is to do this for like redrafting the key man yeah. risk here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, they know. They see, I also do cave dive so they can see where I'm diving from time to time. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh is that like an app? It's like a Strava for app for no, diving? No, there is none, but I'm sometimes sharing pictures oh, and Instagram geez, and like, stuff like this. Oh, And uh, yeah, but... Your poor wife. <laughs> it's, yeah. No, she, she trusts me. I know what I'm doing, but it's definitely the type of scuba that I'm doing is definitely on the riskier side. It uh, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a process, people, anything that you go through? Because you got to gut check this yeah. stuff. I yeah. mean, you have a lot of constituencies. Yeah. You can't just make these decisions yeah. in a vacuum. Yeah. How does that work for you? Yeah, first of all, I'm kind of developing my own point of view. And I like to walk on the extreme and then walk it back. So when I will communicate with people, and it's the people that I trust, is some of the people in the management team. It would be Elon, my co-founder. It would be some of our investors that I think more on the, are more operators in their kind of thinking. My two go-to guys on that would be Adam Bain and, and Ben Horowitz. Both of them are very much, you know, they've been their operators. They give me different perspective. But I'll usually talk in a, a very extreme way, almost like a crazy way. And it's kind of my way to think. It's everybody that knows me knows that that will not be the end state. Yeah, but you're pushing yourself to the logical exactly. extreme. Exactly. It's almost like, again, with this uh, coming back to the office, I will start with five days. I will come and say, why won't we bring everybody back uh, five days? And it's not that I think that that's market or that's even what I believe in, but it's kind of my way to thinking through stuff. Like, let's think about not the Not dissimilar from... How do we get everybody in this airport using exactly. Nevon? Exactly. Yeah. It's the same kind of yeah. thinking. So let's zero sum. Exactly. Let's think about it in the most extreme way. And then I'm thinking about it and I'm getting feedback. And obviously, if you speak in a very extreme way, people will respond very kind of in, a, in an aggressive way because you just said something that is very crazy. Like, you know, bringing everybody in uh, June 2021 to the office five days a week. Of course, it's... it's yeah, you uh, can it's, get canceled uh, for that at that point. You, yeah. can, you can get canceled and you can lose your entire employee base, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so, but I am doing it yeah. to kind of steer the discussion. It's kind of the way that my brain works. Then I listen and I kind of mentioned it earlier, I don't think that anything is an end state. You can correct. You can come and say, maybe I was right about this thing and I was wrong about that thing, right? So you, you can constantly correct. I really love kind of the idea of debriefing. And debriefing is not about, I'm going to blame you. I can blame, right? I can be in a room and kind of say, you f***ed it up. That's a different story. But if you want to have a real debrief, you want to have people in the room that are asking, first of all, describe what happened because people have different perspective of what happened. People can describe the same thing completely differently. And then describe to yourself, why did it happen? And what you, what I could have done better, right? Not what you, right? What I could have done better. And when you have this mentality, and I'm trying all the time on big cups, we are always sitting in the room. And that's what we do. We do these uh, three things. We are sometimes writing them down and do that. And we recently lost a fairly big customer, and it was the first time that it happened to us. And it was a big deal. No churn. No churn. We have churn, but not on like, like meaningful. Uh, yeah, meaningful, yeah. right. So, you know, we sat in a room and it was painful, right? And everybody fucked up. Everybody had something to say. By the way, people at the beginning perceived this event differently. But then coming with what will we do differently, 
I believe will prevent the next loss. I think that's kind of how we operate. Like you can definitely keep changing. You can definitely correct. You can definitely go to a certain extreme and then correct it. You mentioned your co-founder. Again, I don't think you tell me in this format, but from the outside looking in, it seems to me like you both actually have a really good relationship yeah. that has lasted for quite long some time, time right? Yeah, yeah. First company? Yeah, we started, we actually worked together at Mercury. So we know each other for 20 years. Yeah. We worked together at Mercury, at HP, sometimes on the same uh, products and uh, projects. Interestingly enough, we both worked on uh, the Opsware product after no HP kidding. got acquired. Yeah, uh, after, uh, after Opsware got acquired by HP. And then we started our previous startup together and we spent time at Jive together, you know, yeah. with some handcuffs. Yeah. You know, I've talked about yeah. that earlier and started this. It's almost like marriage. It's not just fun. Actually, Elon and I, most of the time, we are fighting. Last week, we had this major release on Thursday. It was basically Avabot that up until now serviced you as a traveler. Now she's also giving you insights of how to save company money. And you can chat with her and you can ask her questions and so on. And the night before, we had some major issues on this release. And Ilan and I are on the phone and we are fighting, right? So we are like that. We, I think we respect each other. We are very, very different. Our capabilities are different. Ilan is a really true techie, right? Give him any kind of new technology and he will master it in two to three months, like in a very, very deep way. Right now, what Ilan understands about AI, he probably didn't know it a year ago. Now he understands it in a different, in a very deep way. So I respect it. There are things in me that he respects. I think that's what makes it work. We also know each other and like each other, but that's different. But I'm talking about like on the work level, but we have ups and downs. There's a lot of advice for relationships that are personal, like your love life. Hey, it's got to be built on mutual respect. You have to have a shared set of values. I wonder, do you have things that you look back on as if you had your checklist that you would say, these are the things that make us work? And I think you just mentioned one of them, but. First of all, you have to have the shared values. If the values are different, I think it is extremely hard. And I think that's maybe critical when you choose your co-founder to really, really, really spend the time on that. We knew each other, but still, when we started the Navan, we were sitting a year before that in a jive and we were talking and the first question was, do we want to start a new startup? Okay, before we even, right, we didn't have any idea. Then the question was, of course, why? So kind of explaining to ourselves why. And then we said it needs to be impactful. It needs to change something big. We've defined it even back then, completely change something big without knowing what it would be. Then we asked ourselves, do we want to do it together? After we did one together. And I was asking Elon, don't you want to be a CEO? Because I told him I want to be a CEO. So don't you want to be a CEO? Aren't you better if you'd kind of started by yourself? And he said, I do, but I also think that this partnership works really well. So I want to do it uh, together again. And that discussion was really important. It defined the relationships into this startup. Now, sometimes these things are coming up, right? And we are very good on bringing things to the table, right? So we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it and we'll figure it out. And I think it has similarities to probably every long-term relationship. You definitely have to have the same values or similar values, right? If you don't, I think it's very, very hard. 
but then you need to work through that. It's not that easy. Like think about it, we've been doing this for eight years, another startup for two years, right? Before that working together, there will be ups and downs. Now the fights that I was talking about, these are fun fights, you know, it's before right. release, you have the tension, right. you know, nothing, yeah. right? Means you're doing something worth fighting about. Exactly. But sometimes it would be, it could be ego driven. My ego, Elon's ego, both, both of us have ego. And co-founders, you know, and you need to talk about it, yeah. right? You, you, if you're not, you're gonna, I think you're gonna break up very, very quickly. Well, and the reason I ask is because besides running out of money, co-founder breakups are the number one reason why startups die. I think these are the two things. I'm always saying that the scene, right? Like how you can f it up could be running out of cash, which I just think it's extremely irresponsible you know, and fight between the founders. Mm -hmm. I think in later stage, the second part is less important. You know, companies can survive it. But the first one, you should make sure that you never run out of cash, no matter what it means. Can you, what do you mean irresponsible? You know, I you feel think, like you have a strong perspective on it. No, I do. I do. I think if you have something that you believe in, like I've believed in Navan, in the value prop of what we're gonna do very, very early. Like I've started to talk with CFOs. We started, Elon was developing the technology and I started to talk with CFOs. I went with the deck and started to sell. And I'm very quickly, I realized we are onto something. CFOs, like they hear, uh, we had back then in the deck, it was in our seed deck, but it was also in our pitch deck to new customers. We had this uh, slide with two McCallens, McCallens 18 and McCallen 12. And we said, what do the you drinks, think? The drinks, yeah, the whiskey. Yeah, exactly, yeah. the whiskey. And we asked when your employees are at a bar, which McCallen do you think they're gonna buy? And of course the, it would be 18. The reaction that CFOs will have around it, they will start to talk with you about how people are uh, buying wine bottles and business class and all of these things. It created emotional reactions with CFOs. And I knew that we are onto something. And then we started to have the first customers and you could see that there are good reactions. Now, we started to kind of gain traction, sign customers, actually didn't sign, like having customers. We actually back then had this idea that you don't need to sign anybody, that you just, you know, you put them in the platform and they start using it, an extremely dumb idea. <laughs> but, but, but that was the idea. And we raised our A round, okay? So we had C, then we raised our A round because we thought that we have usage, okay? This usage completely died. So we are kind of 18... Uh, right after the A? Yeah, 18 months into this, we are at that point valued at 40, 40 million post, which back then was a lot. Today, yeah. I, today yeah. I know it's nothing, yeah. back then was a lot. Yeah. And I remember that people stopped using us and also nobody used the rewards. The data showed clearly nobody gets it. Nobody gets what it is. And I'm committed to the startup. I believe in it. I got these uh, early signs that there is something there. And I could see us actually continuing and experimenting and kind of running out of cash. So I went and uh, raised, we called it an A1, and fairly painful round. This is the round that diluted me the most, but we did it to actually, you know, make good on this belief. I think the alternative is to push it and push it and push it and push it until you're almost running out of cash and maybe you're hoping that something good will happen or not. So that maybe you could raise an up round. There's a little bit more data. Yeah, it's all these things about up round and down round and flat round. I think it's so dumb. I think that if you believe in this company, do whatever round. Your only problem is ego and explaining it to your team. That's your only problem. 
you know, if you are traded, your share price will go up and down all the time. So you need to find, you need to explain it to the team. But if you believe in what you're doing, do it. And if you're not doing it, why am I saying that it is irresponsible? Because you can always move to cash flow positive. That will affect your growth rate, right? But you can always do that if the startup is valid. Or you can extend your runway in early days. And if you don't do that, what about your responsibility to the customers that you do have? Right? You will always have some customers. So one day you'll vanish. What about that? What about the responsibility for your employees? Right? That you kind of look them in the eyes and told them to leave whatever they needed to leave to come and work for you to some equity. And what about your responsibility to your investors and your family and also to yourself? So I think, and I'm saying it because I think that there are a lot of founders right now that are sitting there and kind of waiting for something to happen. The market will improve. And what if not? Right? Do you believe in this startup or not? Right? Do you really want to wait it out until the last minute? Like it's a lot of kind of mind games. And I think just do the right thing. Just, uh, you know, raise money. As long as you believe in the startup, you know, raise money and continue. During COVID, when the business literally went to zero, your travel startup, mm-hmm. it literally went to zero mm-hmm. in two weeks. Yeah, in two days. Two days. <laughs> yeah. Did you have that same mindset? 100%. Is that the first place that your mind went So self-preservation? It was interesting. We are in a completely different place in February 2020. February 2020, we had an offsite and it was how do we do IPO in two years and how do we take the market and how do we grow at this rate? And this was the offsite. This was in February. And we're in a process of uh, trying to buy one of our competitors. I'll not get to the details because there is NDA there and all of this, but we are in that process and a meaningful competitor. And I was flying there to actually work on the kind of the last details and maybe shake their hands. I don't know. Me and Thomas, my CFO, were actually flying there. And the meeting got canceled. COVID started in the US. It was the last few days of February. The first kind of two cases in the US started. Meeting got canceled. On my way back on the airplane, I remember I was uh, texting to Ben, to Ben Horowitz, and I was telling him, hey, let's meet. I think we need a completely different plan. And from that point, and that was two weeks before we lost all of our revenue. But at that point, it was, how do you mobilize your entire support team, basically agents in a call center, to work from home? Before it was clear that you'll need to do that. What do we need to do? What's the plan? How layoffs will look like? Are we continuing? Are we hibernating the company or continuing all of these uh, decisions? And our decision was, we are not hibernating the company. We're actually staying in the market because that would be the best time to get customers, mainly the enterprise segment. It's a good time for change management. Meaning customers getting their house in order. Yes. Yeah. When they're not traveling, they start looking around. Exactly. Like, oh, okay, how do we improve our systems? Exactly. So it was kind of, I remember the board meeting in mid-March. We did this emergency board meeting, right? And what I've proposed is, hey, we're going to do layoffs. We did pretty big layoffs. How big? Uh, 24%. Okay. Which was a lot that early. That was kind of- That's a deep uh, cut that yeah, early. It was really early. It was like, we were the first ones and we got In the a valley. lot- Exactly. And we got a lot of uh, backlash for doing that, especially from the press. But we were definitely the first ones and it was fast. We did it extremely fast. And so I was saying, we're going to do layoffs. We're going to raise money, which I remember that people thought that I lost my mind, but we're going to raise money. 
and we're going to stay in the market. And also we're going to go deeper and faster into expense management, which was kind of, so these were the decisions or the proposal. Why raising money? Because to do that, if you're not hibernating, you are kind of betting when COVID will end, right? And we didn't know. So then let's raise money to kind of buy ourselves this insurance so we can continue to be in the market. And we went out and did all of this. And that's kind of what I've told you earlier. And I didn't think throughout that process that we're going to die. I thought that we need to do these things, that there is an issue here, obviously, but there is also an opportunity here. Yeah. And that's what we did. But if you take your cape off and you go home that night yeah, and you just did a 24% layoff when, by the way, everybody else at the time well, is not only not, this. they're saying we will not lay anybody off. Right until this is over. Right. They went the complete opposite yeah. way. Yeah. And their businesses are skyrocketing yeah. because now everyone's working remote. These are businesses that are enabling digital transformation. Now all of their customers are accelerating that process and the press is just laying into you. Yeah. And you're raising money, I assume from the insiders at that point. No. <laughs> you raise a new you raise a new round from yeah. who? From uh, Greenox, from, okay. uh, from Neil. From Neil? Yeah. What a stud. Yeah. He did that again with Ripley. Yeah. He it, knows how to. He, like I, you need a college. You need a college. Yeah. So all this is happening. Mm-hmm. When you go home, are you like, what the f***? Is there a moment of just like, am I wrong? Am I as crazy as everybody says I am? I think the first three months of COVID, my mental state was complete denial and just executing, just doing stuff. Just so war, almost just war, exactly. Just, you as just war time exactly. as war time gets. Exactly. Just problem solving in perpetuity. Just that. So that's the first two months. And the last month, that was June of the last month of the three months, right? That was June. I started, I think, to get uh, a little bit depressed. And I remember that because I think what started to happen at that point, employees started to leave, right? And it, w- it became very, very, very hard to convince employees to stay. You know, think about it. You go and uh, talk with your friends. And what do you do? I'm working for this business travel company. And the point was not COVID. The point was that everybody back then were saying that business travel will never come back again. Dude, I thought, you know, everyone was saying handshakes are dead. <laughs> exactly. No, but people were very much, and I remember I was saying, but there are no cars in the road, right? So it means that people will never use a car again, right? You cannot just look at the moment and say that right. it will change everything. But people had this really, really strong belief that travel is not coming back, that business travel is not uh, coming back. And again, the inverse of that was also happening, meaning people are only going to deliver food for the rest of their lives. Right, right. So, like, you know, their friends that were at DoorDash right. are seeing insane growth right. and they were projecting the logical extreme on the opposite side as well. Yeah, by the way, talking about Neil, invested in the same month in us and toast. Yeah. Right? So people will not go to restaurants yeah. anymore and people will not travel yeah. again, right? Yeah. And so I think that was the mood. And while I could find an investor that will believe in us, I actually, employees started to, I'm wasting my time here. I'm, I better go and work for Zoom, right? And actually a lot of employees went to go to work for Zoom. And that was depressing. But I remember that the end of June, I kind of disconnected. I disconnected from the news and from some of our investors and from probably anybody in my life that kind of gave me at that point some negativity and started to lead the company again. So for three months, I think I was in war mode, Mm -hmm. not even knowing what I'm doing, just doing. 
then a month for reflection, which was very hard. And then I was out of it. I remember in July, I was, we'll be fine. Did you do the one week off at that point or no? No, I didn't. And when you said going back to leading the company, was it surreal looking back? And the reason I ask is you were raising two rounds a year, maybe more in some cases yeah. for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And these aren't little rounds, <laughs> you know, these are meaningful chunks of money that you're raising people think you just snap your finger even back then there's still efforts of course that goes with that yes. you're spending a fair bit of your calories just fundraising like right. you're not even really correct me if i'm wrong but was there something refreshing about okay we've raised the money we've passed this point i'm going back to just leading the business again because those years previous were just like It was almost felt disassociative. Yeah. There was something else. I don't think that that was the, maybe the way that I will remember it. Yeah. There was something else. I remember that in July, August, 2020, kind of back then, I realized that the people that are around me in the company are similar to the people that you have on the early stages. People that are just there, not because of the hype, not because of the rounds, not because of the press, but they are there because they're actually long-term believers on what we do. We even hired people because a lot of left and we had a plan, so we needed to hire people. My current CRO actually hired him back then in COVID. He was hired as a leader in the sales team and later I promoted him. But every person that I kind of interviewed, I was asking, what's wrong with you? Like, don't you read the news? Like nobody is traveling. So why are you here? Why are you trying to? And it was back to the early days that people that are there are coming for one reason, they believe in something. And that was refreshing. It was after you are already kind of living the early days, coming back to the early days from that perspective. Yeah, it becomes more mission-oriented. It strips the veneer away. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know that people aren't joining because you're the, maybe the HP of today. Right. You know, you're that sexy company. You know, they're coming because they believe that they could win the entire market. Back then, it was two things. They believed that travel will come back. Sure. Right, which is something about our mission. We always had in our mission, uh, we power the in-person connection. It's interesting. We kind of defined this mission early. We power the in-person connections. And it was a thing. And then COVID came. And then I doubled down on it. Like I was basically saying, that's what we do. And right now, nobody needs it. So we basically lost product market fit, right? Nobody needs that. And that was painful to really admit, hey, nobody needs what we are doing right now. It's just not needed. But we said, but do we think that when it will be safe, people will want to meet, people will want to have handshakes? And we said, hell yes. The people that were in the company, I know that there are a lot of other people, but hell yes. So let's do the right things right now to bring all of these companies in, to develop the technology, to do what we need to do. So later, we'll be able to, uh, again, uh, deliver on our mission. And the interesting thing, and it really, that was probably the most positive thing that happened for us as a company out of COVID. We realized that it would be very hard for us if travel will come back to rehire all of the travel agents. And look at the airlines. Right, right. It's very, very hard. A lot have changed their profession, a lot. So we realized that. And we also knew that it's actually, you cannot scale back, scale. So you you need to really find a different model. And out of this came 
a lot of things that we did in the company to become significantly more efficient. So I'll give you an idea, like in the eve of COVID, I had 450 agents in the company. Travel agents. Travel agents. Yep. With CSAT of around 90% and wait time of less than a minute. That was uh, before COVID. Today, with a business, it's probably 5x in its size from pre-COVID. Today, I have uh, 290 agents. Wow. Okay. And a year ago, I had 298. Exactly a year ago. So you get the efficiency. And the efficiency is happening because of this time during COVID that we realized we need to change our thinking. We need to automate a lot of things uh, here. We later added a a chatbot. There is an AI-driven chatbot today, Ava. Mm -hmm. Last week, she covered 36% of our uh, chats in the call center. This is, I'm changing your flight. I'm changing your trip. I'm doing like very kind of hard things to do. That was significant. And, you know, when I mentioned now we are paying for the rewards for your employees to save company money, the reason that we can pay for this is that efficiency. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the, like, 2020 February offsite. You're talking about, like, going public soon. Mm-hmm. And whatever. I'm not big on, like, oh, are you going public or are you not? I don't actually care. But the metrics are all there, obviously. I don't think you're going to raise another round of funding. How do you think about the pros and cons? How do you in your head just weigh those two things as you get closer to like being a business that could go public? Yeah. How do you balance those two things in your head? I think there are different things. And by the way, the main reason that we are not going public is right now is not necessarily the multipliers that you are getting on revenue. It's something else. I think that you want some stability with your share price and in the market. So your employees, to your point earlier, will not get obsessed about this is going up, going down, and so on. You want stability. And in fact, I think that companies, great companies that were built for years, usually went public on the opening of the market. Because now you have years that you can grow. You you don't have this amazing valuation from the get-go, but you can grow, right? You can grow and grow in a healthier way. And I think that's where we will be when the market will open up. We can grow the business to where we want to grow it. But I want it to be stable. I want to be able to manage the company and not deal with the share price all day long. So I think that's one thing. But why would I go public? I don't think it's really, you know, you've mentioned it as kind of a liquidation event. We did do secondaries to everybody. Everybody. Everybody and employees and investors could have decided uh, to go out, including in covid Okay, so employees in uh, January, employees and investors in January 2021 could make the decision to get out. Okay, so I don't have that pressure. Now, of course, you know, eventually you need to go public. We've raised a lot of money and I'm sure that there are expectations, although there is no one investor that came to me with these expectations. Hey, you need to go public by that time. And the employees and me and Elon, we did some secondaries. So we all kind of did some, we got some liquidity. I think there is something else. When you sell to big enterprises, you want to have that kind of stamp that is saying, hey, you know, this company is here to stay. And it just makes it easier from that perspective. You are there. It's very transparent. You can know that I'll be there in the future. We are public. So that's one reason. The other reason, we did do acquisitions. And so far, they were successful, which I know it's very hard to make acquisitions that are successful. So... I think that we, if we had a public currency, we can go even bigger on acquisitions. 
And these are the main two reasons for me to actually go public. Again, I don't think that that's the right time right now in the market, but you kind of alluded to this. We have the right metrics, so the time will come. Yeah, I also probably think, maybe to a lesser extent, but as you think about how does everyone in the airport use Navon, there is something around the credibility and the marketing that you get from being a public company. 100%. Especially as you think about a bottoms-up motion that's layered to the tops down. 100%. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think it is a marketing event. I yeah. think that people will hear about it. Yeah. People will uh, think about Airbnb. They were a known brand before, no question about that, right? And then COVID came, and I think going public during COVID gave them something and yeah. kind of almost matured them in a way that makes it a better business. What's the best advice anyone's ever given to you about a startup? Be yourself. Like really do your thing, be yourself. Don't try to be something else. And this is also what I'm giving founders all the time. This is going to be a weird one, but we've been kind of tiptoeing around it. Why do you love company building? I'm not sure anyone's ever asked you that. No, I actually know the answer for this. I think because I can, and I mean it, like I can look at a problem, but even in big companies, I can definitely have this capability of looking at a problem and fixing it whether it's a business problem, whether it's a product problem, whether it's uh, the company is in a problem. So it's something I know, I feel very comfortable or very confident that I'm doing it. And I think that's what I really like about building companies. It's about the ability to fix something, to look at a problem and fixing it. One of the people that you remind me of, because he's on my Mount Rushmore, is uh, Ali Godzi. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the same intensity. One of the concepts that he talks about is this idea of deposits and withdrawals in the organization. And the way that he describes it is that he is so hard charging in the business and so mission oriented that sometimes there is um, a level of shrapnel that flies off of him yeah. in growing the business because he, that's yeah. he's charging really hard. And in doing so, when you're a hard charger, which I yeah. put you in this camp, yeah. You're taking a lot of withdrawals from the organization and the people. And the reflection that he was having was he has to be very intentional and go out of his way to make deposits into people and the organization. I wonder if you have any, I don't know, if that, if, if, if that I relates. I relate to this a lot. First of all, I love Ali. Okay, we know each other. I love him. He's great. I think he's building something amazing. And also, I think his culture is good and the way that he's thinking about, you know, about this as a CEO, it's, it's really cool. I definitely relate to this. I think, you know, when you're charging or when you're really, you really care about execution or when you're very intense, and I'm very intense, Ali is very intense, you have a lot of CEOs that are like that, there is a price. You are definitely, you know, the people around you are getting some of this uh, shrapnel. And the way that I'm solving it, I'm explaining a lot. And a lot of times, you know, when I will be intense in the moment afterwards, when I will reflect, I would kind of tell to myself, probably I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have been as intense as I was, right? So it's not that I'm like, just, okay, let's charge, let's have the shrapnels, nobody cares. I actually care a lot. And I think there are two ways to solve it. One is to explain, right? You do need to take the time. We actually have it in our values and I am spending a lot of time doing it. We have it in our value lead with context, okay? Give the people the context give the people. There was something last week that I didn't like about our release from a marketing standpoint. So we spent an hour today with the marketing leadership team and I mainly spent time giving them context of what I didn't like there and why it may impact our next release, which we just talked about. So let's fix it. 
Now, it's not fun because this release was, uh, we actually got a lot of traction with this release last week. So to hear, hey, but I actually see this thing and I think that's a problem. It's not fun to hear, but I think you solve it with context. So that's one thing. The other thing, I think you need to be way more specific. There are people that can get this type of approach and there are people that can get a different type of approach. And I think that I know to walk back in different ways, the shrapnels, right? So basically with a certain person, I would just let it be. With another person, I would actually find a way to walk it back. And I think it's important. You do need to get people. You do need to understand if you took it to the extreme to a point that there is no return. I think well said. I appreciate you doing this. So this has been going for an hour and a half, which is hard oh, to wow. believe. Isn't nice. that crazy? Yeah, that's I didn't a, even, that's a, yeah. Well, that's a that's good a, signal of we're, we're having a good conversation. That's great. I usually ask, what does grit mean to you? Maybe for this question, I'd rather hear from you. What's the grittiest thing you've ever seen or you've ever seen someone do? You know, Ben and I always have this debate who had a bigger uh, crisis. Like he in Opsware yeah. or us in COVID. I do think that going public when your company is kind of on the way down, like what Ben did uh, in Opsware, I think it's it requires a lot of grit. Yeah, I agree with you. Last one, are you hiring? Yeah. Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? Yeah, definitely two areas, sales. We uh-huh. are hiring a lot in sales uh-huh. and AI. Okay. And uh, go on your website or something? Yeah. Go to our website, you know, reach out to us, send me an email. It's ariel at navan.com. But definitely we are hiring a lot in sales and uh, in the AI area. Ariel, I appreciate you. Thank you. It was great. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to come back every Monday morning to listen to a new guest or go back into the archives when we've done more than 100 episodes. This podcast is a Kleiner Perkins production and the episode was edited by Eric Johnson from Lightning Pod. Thank you all.